Welcome to Beyond Medicine. My name is Rami Webby. I'm the host of the podcast. I'm a physician with a particular interest in healthcare innovation, building a better healthcare experience, and overall health and well-being. In this podcast, we bring you inspiring leaders from across the medical landscape to help us build a better medicine and lead a better life. We hope you enjoy. Dr. Jeff Gold, Andy, what's up, my friends? How are you guys? How you doing, Rami? Doing well. So we're, we're sitting here. We're, we're in the studio. Uh, we have two mics. So this is three guys, two mics. Maybe we'll name this episode. That sounds... <laughs> it sounds so wrong. So good, dude. <laughs> so, uh, so, yeah, you guys are sharing a mic. Uh, Jeff, you got you got the main state Not of the mic. Cup. But Andy, just feel free to like reach over Jeff and chime in with any comic relief, as I know you're good at doing, and any input on DPC which you're super passionate about. And this is probably what we're going to talk about for most of this conversation. So I'm, you know, I'm excited. Uh, Dr. Gold, you've been, uh, you're a pioneer here in Massachusetts. You opened up the first direct primary care in Massachusetts in, what was it, 2015? Yeah, right? early, early 2015. Yeah. And that was, I mean, for the direct primary care movement, for those that are not familiar, if you haven't heard about this from the many times we've talked about it on this podcast, um, you know, it's basically a gym membership for a doctor, essentially, to make it simple. Uh, cutting out the middlemen, um, and it's been around for about 10 years. People often confuse this movement with, with concierge medicine. It's a bit different, and, you know, like there's some, you know, uh, nuances that make it a little different than concierge medicine. So, uh, so what, you know, so take us back to 2015. You start your first practice here. What is that like? Um... It was, it was pretty tough. I mean, I'm, you know, I think, I think everybody particularly who leaves the system to go into DPC has a different story. Um, you know, I was in a situation where I ha I did have an angel investor or a patient of mine who, who believed in what I was trying to do and had worked in the stop loss industry for a long time. So he understood a lot of the issues with insurance that we see in the health insurance world versus other types of insurance we use. So, you know, I was fortunate enough that if I had, you know, month number two where only three people signed up, my salary was built into the budget and I would just borrow money from the line of credit so that I could pay my bills. Whereas I know a lot of my colleagues have had to moonlight, <clears throat> you know, and work urgent care, work ER. Yeah while they were trying to build their direct primary care practice mm -hmm. up. So I'm very fortunate and very grateful um, for his belief in me. Uh, obviously, I really say as simple as taking a mortgage out of my professional career, um, but I had to do it or else I just wasn't going to last mm -hmm. um, in the system. So, yeah. So, I mean, now that, so you've been in direct in this direct primary care model for, how many years now? Six years? Seven years? About five. <clears throat> Open, I opened the door January 15th, 2015. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, the whole process started probably earlier that year while I was still working at my former employed yeah. big hospital job. 
Okay. So we'll, we'll get into like the nitty gritty of what direct primary care is and how it differs from regular practice. And I, you know, I, we were talking a little bit about this earlier and, you know, on clubhouse and things like that, where people are always doing these conversations, how do we fix medicine? What's the solution to medicine? How do we take back medicine? Then you see all these other conversations that digital health is going to fix everything. Technology is going to fix everything. We're going to create all of these great solutions with technology and, and me in the back of my head, like when all of these conversations are coming up and when we're actually talking about moving the needle forward, you know, we do a lot. There's, there's tons of bitch sessions all over, you know, all on clubhouse, all on whatever people are getting together and, you know, like bitching for, for good reason, because everybody's fed up, right. you know, but that's not doing anything. And it's, and I'm like in my head, okay, this is great. We're all clearly upset about the system, mm-hmm. but what, what's being done? What is tangible? What is f- actually moving the needle forward, and what is actually going to get us to the next, you know, health 3.0 that we want to get to? And for me, I always come back to like when I'm when I'm thinking about this, I'm like, well, the only thing that's really moved the needle is direct primary care. It's a grassroots movement. It's actually putting power back in the doctor's hands, and it's making it so physicians have some flexibility, some autonomy, some, you know, can actually invest their time in their patients. And it's, in my opinion, the only thing that's really gotten to the root, the root problem that we're all trying to fix with Band-Aid solutions. And so like everything else, in my opinion, is just a Band-Aid solution. We can develop all the greatest technology, we can do all that, but the, the, the problem is in the infrastructure and the culture itself. And unless we like dpc from the bottom up start you know like we you know you built a good foundation you have a practice you have a you know you create a direct relationship with your patients and then you know the 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 culture of that and the incentives of that and the transparency of that leads to good results for doctors and for patients and you know for me like this is something that's so obvious because i've been learning from people like you other leaders in the direct primary care space since i was in medical school like i i I saw i saw this being a thing long time ago and i was really excited about it um and it's probably one of the only reasons i stayed in medical school to be honest um and yeah so so you know Tell us a little about that. What's your journey been like the last seven years? How's I know you're very passionate about this, um, and we've talked offline about some of these things. But you know, just give me your thoughts on this, Jeff. Well, I I'm a pretty simple guy, and I think that I've always I don't know if I borrow this quote from somebody or if I stole it, but or if it's my own. But I always say that sometimes the the best solution to a complex problem is the simplest. And, um, you know, I think what we've done, I mean, use the term pushing the needle. I think what we've done is nothing more than what I say, shuffle the deck chairs on the Titanic. You know, Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that if you ask a majority of people in the United States what they feel about the healthcare system, you know, they'd universally say that it's pretty broken and not equitable and, and not accessible and not worth the amount of money that we're spending on it, and this isn't, you know, uh, this is where I get fired up because I think we've turned this, or I should say, allowed it to be turned into a political issue when it's really a social movement. 
I think it's the biggest, biggest, I mean, we, we, we talked offline last week about, you know, race, systemic racism, all the stuff that's going on. Mm -hmm. The reality is the biggest social issue and social crisis in this country is our healthcare system. Mm -hmm. It's, uh, it's the one thing that all of us are either going to be patients of at some point and people need to start asking themselves what type of care do they want for themselves and their kids and their grandkids and they've been pushed into this situation of being just a bystander well you're not an innocent bystander anymore you're if you continue to go along with the status quo and you're not marching in the streets to fix this you're part of the problem and that's where i said to myself working at my old job i said you know one night i just said look at jeff like either stop complaining and accept this is what your role is um, or actually do something about it. And I actually kind of got sick and tired of listening to myself complain. And it was, it was a big risk. Um, you know, I always kind of frame our health insurance in this country, but particularly in certain States like Massachusetts as an addiction. Uh, people, you know, know that every year it's going up and it's taking more money out of, out of their earnings. And yet, they continue to go back. And and I'm not saying that I'm anti-insurance. I'm not. I'm anti-insurance for really dumb things. Mm -hmm. And we've used insurance as a credit card with a really high finance rate yeah. in healthcare. We haven't used it as insurance. Yeah. I just want people to realize that if you used it as real insurance, i.e. paying for the major unexpected, expensive things that are not predictable and not affordable, we can only we can always drive the cost of insurance down. The problem is we're paying we're using insurance to pay for a two hundred and fifty dollar a year mammogram, mm -hmm. but then we're exposing people to the bad stuff if the mammogram is is bad with high deductibles, coinsurance, and copays. I mean it's it's totally ass backwards. It makes absolutely no sense. But people have to wake up and realize that. And I think more and more people are. But they've been so removed from the actual transaction that they don't even see how robbed they're, they're getting every day by what I call the cartel. I tell people, if you want to understand health care in the U.S., everybody loves Netflix, right? They love watching Netflix, binging shows. Watch season one of Narcos, okay? <laughs> it explains how the U.S. healthcare system works fantastically. The only difference is you have Escobar and cocaine, and drugs, and in the U.S., you have health insurance. Mm. And it's all bought off. It's all paid for by the elites. And I say to people, look, you know, we can ask, does our legal system or justice system need fixing? And everybody will say, yeah. And I say, okay, well, would you ask a bunch of bureaucrats, politicians, and lawyers, you know, they're fixing health care. Would you ask a bunch of doctors to go fix the justice system? No. So why are the doctors the last people along with the patients that have any influence in how our system runs. And at this point, you know, 10 years ago, okay, besides concierge medicine, which we can get into later, people really didn't have a choice as to, as to what, where to get their health care. But now they do. There are other choices, whether it's DPC, whether it's sharing groups, sharing ministries, um, you know, smaller companies going to self-insured models versus fully insured or level funded plans. There's, there's so many different ways to do it, but you got to wake up and, and get off your ass and do something about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, 
It's crazy. And it's it, for you, like in 2015, like this still wasn't as popular as it is today. Like I, I know, like even when I first discovered this, like maybe 2018, probably at the end of medical school was, you know, it was still a pretty new thing that not a lot of doctors mm-hmm. were doing. What, I mean, what made you take that leap at that point before it was even by whatever regards popular? Right. You know, and I like, would argue that it's probably still not even as popular as it should be. You yeah. know, I mean, especially in states like this where, you know, if you're not owned and bought by the big hospital systems, like people just don't know there's independent options out there and that the cost of care mm-hmm. in those independent settings is a fraction, you yeah. know, of, in the hospital. But I think for me, like I said, part of it was just being tired of complaining to myself about the time and energy and money that my family put in to me getting educated and giving up, you know, a good chunk of my twenties to, to actually pay to work, pay to learn and yet have it come out where, I mean, I'm nothing more than, you know, a better paid data interest. Um, so for me, it just got to the point where I felt like I was practicing insurance and paperwork and, navigating a system rather than actually taking care of people. And Mm -hmm. I say this all the time too. I knew it was bad when I was in the system. I mean, I saw the things that would go on and, you know, maybe someday if I do have a lot of money and I don't have to worry about getting, you know, lynched, I'll, I'll write, you know, a manifesto and a memoir about all the things I've seen. But Mm -hmm. truthfully, until I got out of the system, I didn't realize how actually corrupt Mm -hmm. it was. I mean, when you start looking from outside the dome and you're helping people, not only from their mental and physical health care, but their financial well-being, and you're trying to help them, you know, find you know, affordable testing, medications, uh, procedures. I mean, it is just so broken and actually it's not broken. It's made this way on purpose, Mm -hmm. um, to be truthful. Yeah. But we need, we need to just scrap it and rebuild it. And there's going to be periods where, you know, certain people may get lost in the shuffle. Um, and that's, you know, one of the biggest gripes from the ivory towers against what we do. But my, you know, response to that is, well, how many people are getting lost in the shuffle? in the current system we have. Yeah. You know? Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 I hear like, I've heard lots of, uh, kind of rebuttals to direct primary care. Well, you know, how is so-and-so going to afford the 40 or $50 a month payment? You know, what do you do for underserved communities? Um, how do you, uh, you know, what if people can't afford to pay the, you know, monthly payment. And I, again, kind of like wonder to myself, I mean, that's a valid question. I understand, like, if you don't understand the model, how that can be the first thing that pops into your head, because you think we're also, we're, we're conditioned to believe that insurance is supposed to cover everything. But if you really think about it, like, well, when you say afford, what do you mean? Because if a patient comes in and their deductible is $500, they're still paying and they're still paying out of pocket and then they still have a copay. And so people are still paying either way. And it's just going, that money's just being transferred to the bulky system that we have and the administrative costs and the, you know, like it's, it's the, to the, all the other things that just waste money in the system. And so, so I get the, I get the, 
I get the intention of people saying, you know, I, you know, you know, they're 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 concerned about certain populations. But I have a, you know, Paul, who's a friend of mine, he was in Southwest Detroit. I mean, I know he sees a portion of his population is, uh, you know, Detroit's underserved and I know he makes it work. And I, I, yesterday I was listening to a, to another direct care doctor on a conversation and this is on Clubhouse, uh, you know, talking about how that, you know, her being freed up from having to worry about insurance, having to worry about all that other stuff that comes with being in a fee-for-service model makes it so that she's actually, her soul, she said it like this, she's like, her soul is freed up to do the things that she went into medicine for, which was to care to people, for people. And so a certain percentage of her population, actually she does for, she sees for free or at a, or a massively discounted rate. And like, there's ways to like structure your practice where you can do things like that, right. and which will make you feel good, you know, like, and, and, you know, when you free up the soul in a way and free up your conscience and free up like worrying about all the other things that come in this, uh, you know, employed healthcare system where you have to see 30 patients a day and, you know, fill out all these paperwork and all this other stuff that comes with all of that. I'm sure everybody knows what I'm talking about here. Um, I mean, you're able to do good things with that extra time you have. Mm -hmm. So, right. And I mean, I think that, you know, people will, it's also an economic problem, you know, where people get down to that debate of socialized versus free market capitalism and all that. And I say to people, we, we've never tried a free market in healthcare. We have crony capitalism. We don't, we don't have, we have three rulemakers, three major big lobbies that make the rules in healthcare and yet they're also playing the game. So isn't it great? I mean, how do you think pro sports would look if the players in the game and the coaches were also the referees? Yeah. Probably wouldn't wouldn't go too well. Um, so, I mean, I think, you know, the two biggest arguments we get against direct primary care is, you know, you're worsening, you know, the primary care shortage by taking a smaller <clears throat> panel size. And my argument is, the the system is what's doing that yeah so, so so let's talk like that drives me insane when i hear that right so you're telling me that a doctor going out and doing what's right for him and for his family and for the 12 or 14 years of whatever amount of time he put into going to school a doctor going and making that decision mm -hmm. is doing a bad thing for society because he's going to see less or he or she right. is going to see less patients and take better care of those patients but because they're seeing less, where that's going to cause a physician shortage. No, no, no. What's causing what's causing a physician shortage in this country right now is number one, the lack of residency spots and the lack of medical schools, the competitiveness of both those things, um, and the culture of medicine. Like if my kids tell me I want to go into medicine, I'm gonna be like, ah, let's go check out the tech space. Let's go do something else. Right. I don't want. I don't want. I wouldn't want my kids to go into medicine. My younger brother, who's a 4.0 student at Michigan Ann Arbor, can go wherever he wants right now. And I'm like, dude, really think about this. You know, like, where do you want to go to medical school? Like, I, I've tried talking him out of it. But, you know, fortunately, he's one of those kids where he's like set, he's set on it. And he's built differently than me. Like, he's a, he's a beast. So he, he's going to be fine. I'm not worried about him. But other people, like, I would be worried about Myself, younger me, if I could go back, I probably would be, 
I mean, I'm thankful that I did go down this path and I'm thankful that I've learned all of the things because now I feel like I, 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 I found something that I want to, you know, help, you know, solve like a problem I want to help solve. Um, and I, I, I'm, I'm very passionate about seeing other doctors in the healthcare space, you know, reclaim their life and, you know, build a future for themselves and not be so, uh, and I was talking to this doctor the other day from the DPC group. I was helping her with her podcast and, uh, you know, like I broke my heart hearing this woman talk about like her currently her employer, her employer and the way that the employer is treating her and how she is, you know, without going into too much details, it's just like terrible. Like she's, she's trying to start her own practice now, but like her employer's putting up all of these, um, uh, barriers to her doing that. And like, I don't know. I, I, I think, I think like, I think like it's a bit of gaslighting in a no, way. Without a doubt. I mean, yeah. I, you know, I say all the time and, you know, Andy, who's sitting here half asleep. Um, when, when, when <laughs> Andy, we, God bless you. Man. When we talked last week. Andy, can you, can you chime in? After, you know, yeah. go ahead, Andy. Yeah, I mean, I thought we were going to be here talking about, like, colonoscopies and foreign body jokes <laughs> and stuff. But you guys have got real hot and heavy right off yeah, the right. bat. So we'll get, uh, we're gonna get I, I'm a little in over my head with this stuff. But, yeah, no. Go ahead, Joe. Well, we talked last week, and... You know, and this whole like burnout, you know, physician burnout, I always say, I say to everybody, it's, let's just call it what it is. It's abuse. You know, it's, it's, you know, people say, well, oh, you're going into direct primary care concierge because you want to, you know, you don't want to work as hard. It's like, come on, you're talking to, you're talking to a group of people who gave up their twenties to go work, pay to pay to go to medical school, accumulate debt go to clinical rotations, then go to a minimum three-year residency program where every couple nights you're on call working, you know, 36, 40 hours straight. It's, it's not that we don't want to work hard. We just want to work hard doing the shit that we train to do, not, you know, sit there and push paper around when you're taking care of patients and you're working towards bettering the system. That's a very different hard work than sitting there trying to get a prior authorization on a $40 cream. You know, the, it's, they're two very different things. And mm-hmm. I think that getting back to what you were saying about the technology and the foundation, the biggest failure that this system has is that we have not invested in the foundation at all. Uh, primary care, mental health constitute about 7% of the spend from public and private payers in the U.S. And would you ever go to a builder and say, hey, build me a mansion but, you know, just get some twigs and some sticks from down the street and make my foundation out of that. But I want all fancy crap, you know, up in the rooms. No, the foundation's not sexy. It's not pretty. But without it, the system isn't sustainable. And what ends up happening is, you know, you see all these things on social media with the little sandwich board, you know, shop local and blah, blah, blah. Well, where are all those people saying that about healthcare? They're going to the big hospital system, own clinics. Well, what about shopping local? What about getting an independent primary care, you know, getting back to community-based hospitals and bringing healthcare back to the community, which is where it really belongs. That's nothing against tertiary medical centers. We need them. We need the teaching hospitals. We need the research. We need all that high-tech stuff, but everybody's investing in technology. Well, you know, if you don't have the relationship, you know, the technology is kind of useless. You know, there's a big difference between me talking to my own doc about, 
whether I should go to the hospital or not on a Friday night versus talking to some random, you know, Joe Schmo halfway across the country that I'm paying 95 bucks that knows nothing about me. And it, for liability reasons, going to be like, yeah, well, just go to the hospital and get checked out. Or, you know, it's, it's so broken and it's amazing that people settle for this. You know, I always say if, if, if it was my birthday and I'm going out, I make a reservation on a Friday night at a restaurant and I, you know, I get there and they say, you got to wait, go to the bar. I go to the bar. They give me a menu, drink menu with no pricing on it and just say, have what you want. And then finally, you know, at 845, I get called over to the table and same thing. They give me a menu with no price. Everything's market, 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 market. And then they were like, oh, by the way, you only have 15 minutes to eat. Mm. Like, would you go back? Nobody would. Right. But yet they do the same damn thing every day with healthcare mm-hmm. and then complain about it. Mm-hmm. Well, stop complaining yeah. because we can help you with insurance. We can help you fi- do the best of our ability to help you find them. Not that most insurance is affordable, but find you the best possible fit, mm-hmm. you know, that's individualized for what your needs are um, and, and also provide the care. You know, coverage and care are not the same, but the way the media and the government, they they equate the two. That if you have coverage, you get care. Mm-hmm. Not true. Yeah. I've been thinking about something a lot recently. And, um, you know, there's a lot of talk about a single-payer system and uh, talk about other, you know, like doing something like the NHS does or doing mm-hmm. something like Canada does. And I wonder, like... I'm sure, like, you know, everything's a trade-off, right? You know, like, you, you, you put one, you know, one system, you know, like, there's some trade-offs, and there's some good things that'll come, a lot of down, bad things that'll come. Like, a lot of people talk about single-payer here in the States, and I'm like, I think that'd be really bad. Um, because I think that what would end up happening is that we'd very quickly create a two-tier system. And what would happen is that anybody who can afford most people probably who can will be able to afford to do a membership-based practice or direct primary care and uh you know so they don't have to wait in line for a week to see a primary care provider because you know i think we'd flood the gates in a way by doing that and burn out all the doctors that are in the system by you know creating insane amount of traffic And then, you know, splitting people out of the system, which then are also seeing less patients, which would exacerbate this problem. And then, you know, uh, you know, basically it'd be like, if you want any form of decent healthcare, you're going to have to pay a membership fee outside of the healthcare, outside of the fee for service system. And if you, you know, like if you just need minimal minimal coverage, you'll kind of get shoved into the fee for service system and you know, who knows, like maybe it'll be decent care. Maybe it won't. I just, in my opinion, think that it will play out in that way well, in perfect. some, in well, some fashion or not. Well, Massachusetts is a perfect example, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, we're, where Romney care started. Obamacare is based on it. We, you know, we lowered the threshold for, you know, uh, qualifications for Medicaid. And in the past two years, our Medicaid spend is like way over what they predicted. I mean, right now, Medicaid and MassHealth itself is running about 30 to 35 percent of our, full, our our whole state budget. Wow. So is that working? So here's a simple solution, right? Because like I said, I'm a simple guy. It's like Occam's razor, which, 
you know, we learn in med school, find the simplest solution to a complicated problem. We give EBT cards. Why can't we give people a DPC card based on means? You know, maybe, you know, maybe if I'm in a real tough homeless population and that's where I want to practice, maybe 150 people is all I can handle on my panel because, you know, they're so complex. But so maybe the monthly stipend that goes on that, you know, DPC card is double what it would be for someone in a different type of community that can take on more patients. But, you know, again, just giving somebody a card and letting them know that, well, this is the system you're born into is not care, you know? And I think, you know, we kind of already have a two tiered system, but I think we can make it less of that by actually treating people like human beings. And Mm -hmm. I think people deserve to have a choice of where they get their healthcare and who they get it from and how they get it. Absolutely. Maybe they don't want DPC. Maybe they have a great relationship with a doctor at a community health center, more power to them. But why, why does there always have to be a middleman in the transaction? Mm-hmm. Why can't we just give the money mm-hmm. to the people who need it? Mm-hmm. Yep. Like, See, it, this is what blows my mind, Jeff. Like clearly, like there's, Number one, it's cost-effective, saves money for the system, saves money for the system. Without a doubt. Um, You know, you showed me a a graph the other day of all of the comparative prices in the insurance, you know, prices for insurance and prices Mm -hmm. for, uh, you know, like negotiated prices that you do with a third party. Right. Um, And, you know, it's clearly cost-effective. The labs are cheaper. Medications are cheaper i i think you know wholesale medic i know there's an issue here in massachusetts with that which is a whole discussion that we can have later on um but clearly it works from it works for the doctors it works for the patients and it saves people money so what's holding what is holding this up like why isn't this being adopted because the rule makers don't want it to be adopted i mean this isn't this isn't rocket science like i said the system is Mm -hmm. not broken it's built exactly the way that the wrong people want it built and they're Mm -hmm. extracting a lot of dollars um, that and provide nothing of value, nothing to care. Mm-hmm. I mean, look at the PBMs, the pharmacy benefit managers are a perfect example of this. Not all of them, but the three main ones, which mm-hmm. I won't name, all they do is write a formulary. They're not doing research and development. They're not doing, you know, pharmaceutical trials. They're literally just extracting money mm-hmm. from hardworking people and providing nothing in return other than jacking up costs, but they're, they're allowed to do it. Mm-hmm. So this is what, you know, I'll just cut the, the chase with the single payer system yeah. and it's never going to happen in this country. Yeah. And the reason is, is because you're never going to see a system where Aetna, Blue Cross, United and Cigna and Humana, the Buka is what we call them, just disappear. It's never, never going to happen. Yeah. So what we have right now is we actually have a government, we have a socialized system under the guise of insurance mm-hmm. is what I call it. So the faces of the system are the big, you know, the, the big insurers, but the man behind the mask and behind the curtain and Oz is the government. They're, mm-hmm. they're the ones that allow, you know, I've got to report every amount of money I take from any drug company or whatever. Where are insurance brokers forced to report what their cuts are? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, if I'm a fully, ins- if I'm a business owner and I have a fully insured plan through Blue Cross, I don't even get access to my claims data on what my employees are using or not using. Mm. 
So how come we have to show everything and have our cards on the table, but they don't? Oh, that's right, because they make the rules, mm. right? So our version in the U.S. of a single-payer system would simply be this. Change the position of the people in the curtain. You then have blue, because most people don't know this, but me- Medicaid and a lot of the Medicare plans now, mm-hmm. they're all managed by private insurers. Yeah. So now what you do is you just flip the bukas behind the curtain, and now the government's the face that they're running everything. Hmm. I mean, so if you want, if they have proven to you that they can fix this, and you really have cognitive dissonance, especially after the past year, that you think with COVID that they have shown to you that they can manage this, by all means, do it. Yeah. But as long as you don't take away private options from people, I'm, I'm all for having a, a dual system where you have a public. I mean, I'm not a big Obamacare fan, but I will say that the one thing he did try to do but mm. got shot down by guess who, the insurance lobby, was mm. he wanted to have a public option in there mm. that people could choose if they wanted to do that. Yeah. You know, just like shipping. Yeah. You I mean, go, you can go. To, you can go to the post office. Yeah. Or you can go to UPS. You can yeah. go to DHL. Yeah. Why can't we have choice? I mean, what do you do when something when like when there's a, such a powerful entity like insurance companies that have obviously vested interest in the healthcare system being a certain way, mm-hmm. but but clearly there are better options, mm-hmm. um, and. Clearly, DPC is not something that insurance companies benefit from. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think you mentioned something along the lines about this the last time we spoke. Um, I can't remember what exactly. What, the medical loss ratio? Y- yeah. The 80-20? Well, that and uh, just based on, like, you know, they, you know, the way they get paid. Yeah, it's uh, a percentage. So basically, mm-hmm. you know, any private insurer has to spend 80% of their dollar on claims and 20% on administrative costs, but it's a percentage. Mm-hmm. So they have no reason to control price or to bring price down mm-hmm. because the more they charge, the more claims they file, the more money they, they can make. Mm-hmm. There's no incentive. Mm-hmm. you know. So again, I put this on the American people. Like, wake up, do something. You know, like, it, it, because the way that we fix it and the way you get through those obstacles is you get people and employers to say enough is enough. This is how we're going to do it. Mm-hmm. And you know, all that money that I donated to your political campaign last year, if you even think of taking this away from my constituents or from my employees, that money isn't coming to you anymore. Mm-hmm. Well, politicians care about his votes. I mean, let's, let's call yeah. a spade a spade. Mm-hmm. So they're not going to take it things away from people that they like, yeah. but you have to build the army. It's, it's no different. How did blockbuster go away? How did Netflix and Amazon, same thing. You build a better product that makes the other product obsolete. Yeah. You know, and, but people and doctors together, I mean, think about it. When you look at any specialty in healthcare, and mm-hmm. it's not that there aren't other docs that are trying to, mm-hmm. you know, fix the system, but as a group, the direct primary care docs, which are mostly, you know, family internal medicine or peds, primary care docs, mm-hmm. I would say are the only group of physicians in this whole country that are risking personal well-being, financial well-being, professional well-being to do what they think is right for the American people mm-hmm. to fix this system. Yeah. So get behind us. Yeah. You know, don't sit and tell me that oh, 
you know, I, I can't afford your $90 monthly fee because I'm building a home on Marblehead Neck. Yeah. You just don't want to. So go back to the system, but just do me a favor. Don't complain about it. Mm-hmm. When it don't put a post on social media mm-hmm. that you're frustrated with your bills make no sense or you had to wait, you know, three weeks to get an MRI. I yeah. don't want to hear it. Yeah. And, and, and that's a good point. And I think that we need to... We need to educate. I think people still are learning about what this is. Yeah. And we need to kind of help people unlearn what it what it means to get to pay for care or to get service. Cuz like I think the analogy that's been shot to death by now is the car analogy. Right. You know, you, you use car insurance for catastrophes when you get in a major accident, but you don't use it for your maintenance. Right. You don't use it for your car alignment or for you know inflating your tires or for changing your oil those are maintenance costs you put them out of pocket because it's just you know it's cheaper that way you know like those are low cost things generally and they can be taken care of relatively easily Mm -hmm. same thing with insurance you know like in every aspect whether it's your home insurance nobody's nobody's uh no insurance is going to cover your uh like your dishwasher breaking unless you got dishwasher insurance but or like you know something like that uh you know these are just common sense things and if you want service which primary care is a service in my opinion like if you look at what it actually is it's a service you're seeing someone and you're giving your time to them the same way that a barber would see someone and give their time and give you a haircut you you know a a physician is someone who's highly specialized highly trained and is giving you a service and we need to, i think i think that brainwashing is is a bit of the right. problem and then also all of this you know healthcare as a right you know like i know this is very controversial i know i i do believe in a sense that health you know healthcare should be in some sense a right if you like get into let's say a danger into horrific car accident you need to be seen right away absolutely like you should every single human being in America should have access to health care, should and, be able to get. And they do. Yeah, and in they the do. In the United States, they do. Right. They're not going to get turned away from an ER. Right. Right. And we have the EMTALA Act in place for that. And, and you know, all of these other things, which is great. But this is like, like, I think there needs to be, there's nuance in all of this, right? Like, health care is a right. Like, maybe we should rethink that because maybe that's a little bit of a dangerous thought. To have, because if we think like that, what does that mean? What are we saying about the people in healthcare? Are they servants? Are they just obligated to do whatever the healthcare system deems is right for them to do? Is when you, you know, work like, for the, when, yeah, when you work for the state, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, the analogy I use all the time with this question about it being a right or not is um, my firm answer is no. And the reason I say that is people have a right to the oath I took that I made a promise that I will take care of anybody, you know, regardless of their ability to pay or whatever. And I have the choice to do that. If I go against my oath, then I'm a putz. If I, if I do the oath I took, I'll take care of anybody. But here's the deal with the right falls apart for me. I would argue that what you eat, okay is more important to your overall well-being, physical and mental well-being, than anything I do as a, as a primary care doc. 
and we would argue we you know we we're looking at the research now that's been out there for decades that you know grass-fed beef pasture-raised dairy organic you know fruits and vegetables are so important right well you're the farmer in upstate new york that has an independent farm raising all this stuff do i have a right to go up to you and just say well that stuff's really good for me i don't care about your labor i don't care that you've been up at four o'clock in the morning day in and day out with your family running this business it's it's a right i just get it no i don't i don't have a right to it i have a right to work out a deal with you that you charge me a certain amount even if i mean i say to people i would rather take a dozen eggs a week from a patient mm -hmm. than take a payment from an insurance company or the government again they're showing me that they value me that they appreciate the service and the care that i'm providing mm -hmm. and that's enough for me yeah but they don't have a right, right to me i mean it makes people feel lousy and and andy i'll let you yeah no, I I can't help but think if we're going to say that healthcare is a right, the you know the the other aspect to consider here is that the patient population, okay, you have a, a right to healthcare, but you also have a responsibility to partake in your own self care. In other words, a huge part of my understanding is a huge percentage of of the health conditions in this country are chronic. Uh, complex, ongoing uh, conditions that require patients to, to self-manage and to be responsible and to educate themselves and to work on a regular basis to to keep those conditions under control. And, and they don't because they don't have the education or health literacy level. So they have these exacerbations. Then they roll up to the ED. The ED doesn't have time to see them, you know, or, or spend the time with them rather. So then, you know, they patch them up and kick them back out. And that happens over and over and over again. And a lot of those people have this mentality or um, just uh, don't have the ability to engage in their own care because they don't have time with the provider. So it's like this this weird sort of um, revolving door or cycle of, mm -hmm. you know, so I guess my point is, is that we have to educate the public too, that yes, in a catastrophic situation, you certainly have the right to care. Of course, a doctor is going to, regardless of your ability to pay or whatever, but in the long term, you also have a responsibility to to be involved um, in in your own care, and, and and so if we can build a system where patients have access to a relationship with a doctor, that'll prevent a lot of that crap from from continuing. Yeah, yeah, and uh, you know, like I I, I see I, I look at, I try to look at things from as many angles as I can, and I did work at a federally qualified health center. And I have worked with, you know, refugees, the most underserved of our community. And I've seen the worst problems of the world. Like, I've seen healthcare at its worst, basically, um, in terms of, I mean, actually, I will say that this was a very high-functioning health center. Like, it's actually, like, there's a pharmacy, there's, there's um, you know, a dentist office, vision center. It was pretty comprehensive. But I also see, like, you know, like, over you know like there's a lot of patients you don't get a lot of time with patients there's a lot of paperwork a lot of paperwork in these communities um and you know like there's a lot of like health literacy problems and there's lots of you know communication barriers and all of these things um you know i do i believe that that community absolutely deserves the best health care yes because you know 100%. yeah and 100 percent, i believe they that those communities should have you know in a sense the right to health care because they are under you know like i think of like even i have family members i know who have struggled struggled to see a doctor 
um, where I've known a doctor that's actually said, Hey, you know what? Don't worry about it. Just come and see me anytime. And like, I remember hearing this from one of my family members and I was like, whoever this doctor is, I want to go like give them a hug because you know, like at the time this family member didn't have insurance and this doctor was like, just don't worry about it. Just come see me. I'll take care of it. Don't ever worry about it. You know, like, I think this is the essence of like people and healthcare. Like they're good people. Doctors are good people. They go in for the right reasons. We go in to help people. We go in because we care about people. And then we go through the system and we feel resentment. We feel frustration. We feel like we have no control over our lives. And worst of all, for me, I felt stuck, you know, and there is no, there's, they say there's a light at the tunnel, but it doesn't really seem like there is, you know? So, so when I hear the word right to healthcare and my mind, like, it makes sense in a way, but then there's a part of me that says, wait a minute, like someone, like it doesn't make me feel good. Like that someone is entitled to my time or into my, to my, like, you know, to my generosity or to what I feel is right or wrong. Like, you know, it, it almost makes it feel like, you know, we're not being really considered here. Like, why is my time a right for someone else? You know, and if I disagree with that, am I a bad person for disagreeing with that? I don't believe, I don't believe people should be entitled to doctor's times. I don't, I I think it's bad enough for doctors. I think they're already burned out. They already don't have time. They barely have time to spend time with with their family and their kids and, and, and all of that. So that is the part for me of these kinds of conversations that really makes me feel a little uneasy. And I think it's like people like to get on, I don't know if it's self-righteousness or what it is. Maybe some people feel like, you know, they're just here to help people. They don't want to ever talk about the business side of things. They don't care what the system's like. I'm just a martyr here to, to serve my purpose well, they, on earth. They should care because it is a yeah. service and without, yeah. and without money and without an exchange and a transaction, there won't be that service. That service mm-hmm. goes out of business. I mean, this, this is simple economics. Yeah. You can't have an unlimited demand with a limited supply. I mean, that's like econ 101. Yeah. You know, I think that, again, I took an oath. Most doctors, I would say, as you just said perfectly, go into this for the right reason. And it's, you know, like the good Samaritan rule. If I, if I'm walking down the street and I see somebody that's collapsed, I'm going to stop and do what I can to help that person. And I would do the same in my office. But you know what, if, if I walked by and did nothing and just looked at the guy and Andy's on the other side of the street and was like, dude, Jeff, like literally just walked by that guy, like as a doctor, like bleeding from his head and just walked by. My reputation is going to be pretty crappy. I mean, yeah. that, that's how a free market works is yeah. I'm the greedy doc that's not going to get my hands dirty, right? Mm-hmm. But I took an oath that I can speak for myself, that I would do anything I could to help that person. That's what I trained to do. Mm-hmm. Um, just as a fireman, I think, would go walk, drive by a fire and try to put the fire out whether they're on duty or not. You mm-hmm. know, So the, the word right you know, is a very, very big ethical thing but i think in moral discussion but i think you just have to realize that when you become even when you make it a right which basically people say is a national system right that Mm -hmm. everybody has a right 
people are, you're still paying for it with tax dollars. Yeah, like yeah. nothing's free. Right. You know, so right. the money's there. There's a transaction being made. You're just not seeing it. Mm-hmm. But again, can you have, as you mentioned, in other countries, you know, there's flaws with that system too. Just as we have flaws, mm-hmm. there's flaws with every system. Yeah. Um, the reason I love the direct primary care model is because I think it takes all the players that are in the system, patients, doctors, government, and insurers, and lets them play in their own little sandbox mm-hmm. and do the job that they were supposed to do. The government is there to, to help the people who can't be helped or mm-hmm. need help mm-hmm. or can't help themselves. The insurers should be there to provide insurance and prevent people from gro- going broke. And sure, make make money. I mean, mm-hmm. they're allowed to make a profit, but do something good with it for crying yeah. out loud. Yeah. You know, and the doctors and the patients can work together like they should. Yeah. Simple. Yeah. I mean, what, I mean, for me, like, okay, an insurance company, they're obviously making lots of money, mm-hmm. right? What's to say, like, this movement takes off and direct primary care becomes a thing. And this is already starting to happen where there's some practices they, they, they kind of put in the faux, the faux DPC where it's still yeah. hospital-based, but they call it a DPC. But they're doing all the same things. They're just charging you a membership fee now. Right. <laughs> so, so like, like for me, and I think I've said this before, it's the, the, the real definition of, like, direct primary care is the root of the movement it's the spirit of it mm-hmm. it's like the doctors you know like getting involved and take, having some skin in the game in a sense and uh building something that's theirs you know building uh, a practice that serves patients that are you know forming a direct relationship with them whereas like these faux quote-unquote dpcs are really it's just it's just it's whatever it's a hospital-based system that's still employing these doctors and just calling it a dpc like there's no real ownership right. within the space right? right so yeah and i think again you know primary care is really about a relationship you know and i think dr fernando Pule from iora mm-hmm. you know I, I listened to him at, at a meeting one day said you know that we've turned primary care into a bunch of transactions and you know, the reality is when you go in for your appendix, right? It's unexpected, it perforated, you're sick, you need a surgeon to get it out, right? Is it great if your surgeon has wonderful bedside manner and TLC? Sure. But really all you care about is, are they going to get me off this table in one piece and get me back? And I hope I never see them again. Mm-hmm. It, that's a transaction. Primary care is very different we've turned it into a fee-for-service transaction. And again, I've been pretty harsh on the American public here, but I will say that they, as you mentioned, they, they've been brainwashed and they've been fed into, into this belief system that just isn't true, which is that if you don't have insurance, you know, you can't afford good, you can't get access to good affordable health care. And the corollary is that if you have insurance, you're guaranteed good affordable health care, which we both know both of those are BS, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but that's what people have been trained to believe. So it's, you know, I, I do cut them some slack, um, you know, but it's like while we're sitting here, I just got an email from a family that, you know, have taken care of the two kids for a few years that they're leaving my practice to go to a different practice because they, quote, need more comprehensive care. Like, what the hell does that mean? Mm-hmm. They're going to get more comprehensive comprehensive care when the doctor in their in the office is seeing 30 to 40 kids a day 
okay. I mean, but hey, that's it's a free market. Like, do what you got to do. You mm. know, like if the forty bucks a month per kid I charge is not comprehensive enough, then so be it. You know, it's I want people to do what they feel is right for them and their family. Mm. And it sucks, but if that's what they feel is right, then go do it. But like I'm left thinking, like, what does that even mean? Yeah. You know? Like I mean, even during COVID, you know, we had plenty of people that because we have a relationship with them, you know, maybe they lost work, maybe they lost benefits. We'd sit and talk to them, they'd call the cancel and be like tell me what's going on. Like what happened? I know the times are wacko right now. Mm-hmm. All right, well let's take care of you and put your fee on hold for six months and yeah. let's regroup then and see what we can do. Mm-hmm. But I don't have to have the government tell me to do that. Mm-hmm. I yeah. do it cause it's the right thing to do. Exactly. Yeah. That's, that's the point. And I think, <laughs> I think if you, I think if you just did that 99.9% of doctors would do the right thing. And I know I'm speaking here in terms of doctors, and there's other people that play a role in this, but, you know, I'm just for conversation's sake. I read somewhere that there's, like, a shortage of primary care docs, and by 2025, it's going to be, like, a shortage of close to 100,000 primary care. Is that because they just are recognizing that the prospects for actually doing medicine are so bad that they're going to become a specialist or is it because of money? Like, what is your guys take on that? Like, why are people not going into primary care? Take it away, Jeff. I have no idea how to answer that. Well, I think it's, <laughs> I think it's simple. Who wants to do that job? I mean, yeah. who, who wants to go through three years of extra training to then be told what to do, how to do it, how to code, how to bill, become nothing more than what I call a referral list where you know, you learn all this great stuff in, in residency that you can't even practice in real time because you don't have the time to do it. You don't have the time to even think or take a leak during the day, never mind, you know, stitch mm-hmm. somebody up. So I think that's part of it is number one, what you're going into is not what you wanted to go into. Number two, it's one of the least paid, you know, besides psych, pediatrics, I think it's like family and primary care internal medicine are the lowest paid specialties. And of course all the public would be like, wah, 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 you know, who are they to complain? You're making six million, you know, six figured salaries. Okay. Yeah. That's after I just paid, you know, 80,000 a year for four years of grad of grad school. Next. Um, you know, we're not mm-hmm. driving around in, in Porsches and living on the water. Um, mm-hmm. you know, unless it's like a hut, but I think that, the reality is we've now had a system that's determined that mid-levels can do what we do if and better mm-hmm. um, for a fraction of the cost, mm-hmm. right? And this is nothing against mid-levels. I've worked with really good ones. I've worked mm-hmm. with a lot that not so good. Yeah. But, and it's not to say that every doctor out there is great, but I can, I'd argue that, at least going through seven years of training makes you a little bit better than two. Yeah. But the public, if you see it from their perspective, they don't know any different. Like if anything, a lot of patients from my old practice didn't come with me because they saw the nurse practitioner who happens to be a very good one more than I, more than me. And they're not under the same time constraints that the physicians are. Mm. So if, if you are going in and someone's sitting down with you and listening for 30 minutes and you feel heard, even though their, their knowledge breath may not be even remotely close, that patient yeah. says, what the hell do I need a doctor for? Yeah, yeah. You know? So I think those are all part of the reason is yeah. it's, 
yes, it is. It is about money to some degree, yeah. you know, like we need to pay back loans and we need to make a living, yeah. you know, and we're starting probably a minimum decade later yeah. than most of the people we graduate college with or that don't go to college and start yeah. a business right out of yeah. high school. Yeah. So I think it's, it, I don't think it's complicated. I mean, you know, like I, like I called myself, I was a referralist when I worked in the system, I was a referralist. It's like, did my 20 minute routine checkups and then any acute injury, if it wasn't something simple, like they're going off to a specialist because I don't have time to mm -hmm. do it. Yeah. And that's where the systems make their money. Yeah. I mean, for every primary care doc that's employed by a major medical system, they operated their, their clinics operated a loss on a good day. Yeah. But they generate about 1.7 million for that system. hundred percent. This is, doc. this is where this is the, this is the gold right here. This is Are the, you saying that, like pun intended. No, or? no, this is the, yeah, this is the Jeff gold right here because this is the, this is a conversation of, of deep interest of, for me because, uh, I did a post on this, uh, about a year ago where I looked at a study from, I don't remember the exact uh, organization, but it was basically revenue generated by specialty, right? And they had a list of specialties going down the row, primary care, internal medicine, OBGYN, surgery, ENT, mm -hmm. plastics, you name it. Who are the highest revenue generating physicians in the hospital system that you would think of like off the, you know, like who would you think like- oh, is, yeah, Durham, you think Durham, you would think plastics, ortho. Yeah, it's primary care. Yeah, yeah, it's among that. it's among the number one generating money generators for hospitals. Why? Because what? Where do you think all the patients are coming from? Right. Where are they all going downstream? Why do you think all of these hospital systems fight for primary care doctors? Because the primary care doctors are essentially casting a big net into the ocean catching a bunch of fish and shuffling those fish into your hospital system for downstream procedures, downstream caths, downstream MRIs, all that stuff is going to be done at that hospital system. So PCPs capture pools of patients and shuffle them into your system. So there's UMass and there's St. Vincent's across the street from each other. What it, how do they get more patients in their system? Well, they get more PCPs, even if they're taking even if those PCPs are at a loss, you know, they're paying them 250K, administration another 150K, Operating you know, like 65% overhead. Right. And then, but downstream, there's money to be made because all the referrals are going to go to the hospital and right. that's where they make the money. Right. That's why, I mean, COVID is a perfect example of this because when you look at, in Massachusetts, we don't have a lot of them, but in other areas of the country, there are mm -hmm. independent primary care practices, you know, doctors who are, you know, still taking insurance, but on their own, not employed mm -hmm. by a hospital. But the statistics were about 27% of those practices had to shut down, mm -hmm. you know, because of COVID and the fact that they couldn't see people, file claims, you know, with insurance, wait, get paid, blah, blah, blah. But if you look at the hospital-owned primary care clinics, they opened up like it was right back up like it ain't no thing. And mm -hmm. the reason is because they usually operated a loss anyway. Yeah. Like So you just put the lights back on, open up, and start the referral chain right back. Yeah. So that's how they would stand it. It's because they operate a loss anyway. But, yeah. you know, people don't 
see that. And I think, you know, it brings me to another important issue, which I've talked to like my colleagues in DPC a lot about is everybody says we have to educate about, you know, DPC and get the public to understand. I'm like, I think we need to take a step back and educate the public on what the hell primary care is. Because the reality is most people, especially in areas like this that are so super specialized, they think it's for sore throats, UTIs, your routine checkup, and then you go to a specialist for every other thing under the sun. No. I mean, we learn chronic disease management. We learn acute care. We learn urgent care. We Mm -hmm. learn psych and mental health. And I think that's the step that has to be taken is because people don't even understand what the hell we do. I mean, I get people who come in and they're like, Oh, you can inject my knee with cortisone. I don't have to go to ortho. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I learned anatomy and I learned the landmarks of where to put the, yeah. I mean, we learned, we learned everything in residency. We know how to take care of, I mean, it's just, it's for a lot of doctors. Even though I may not be doing, you know, ICU work or hospital Mm -hmm. work like I used to, you can't tell me that the fact that I did that stuff mm-hmm. doesn't make me a better clinician, a better diagnostician and a better physician, mm-hmm. you know, just because yeah. I don't do it today doesn't mean that going through that training yeah. didn't put those experiences in my head that are like, Oh, yeah. I remember that. Yeah. You know, I mean, think of, I, I think about it like this, like, I think the training to become a doctor is being trained on how to think through a problem and, you know, information is at our fingertips and with that doctors know how to find answers i think and if you couple that with the actual time to sit with a patient and really dig into what's going on with it like with 10 minutes you can only dig so much you know it's like you got to get quick quick answers let's go let's go and then it's it's you know there's not enough time to go through the like if you really wanted to solve something instead of just referring it out you know, if you spent maybe 10, 15 more minutes, you might get enough information from the patient to just figure it out. That saves the referral. And yeah, I mean, there obviously are scenarios. Of course, there needs to be a referral, but there are plenty of situations that I could see where, you know, had a little bit more time elapsed and, you know, thoughtfulness right. been provoked and maybe a, a couple up-to-date searches, right. you how many, could how figure this out. How many times do you remember this scenario, like when you're a resident? When, when I was in residency, you know, we'd be sitting in the doctor's lounge and we'd be talking about a case, you know, that we have up on the floor and we'd be sitting there with like the nephrologist, you know, and they'd be listening and they'd be like, oh, you know, have you guys tried this? Have you tried that? And we're like, yeah, we did that. And like, they'll be like, oh, okay, well, you know, try this. But, you know, if they're not getting better and you need me on board, just put in for an official consult. Remember those days where you could actually like pick up the phone and be like, hey, you know, I just got somebody I want to curbside you know, let's not make this into some big billable transaction, but mm-hmm. is there anything we can do before we bring you on board? Yeah. You used to have those discussions all the time. Mm-hmm. And not only is it better patient care, yeah. you learn, you learn a lot as a, as a primary care doc and you mm-hmm. see what the specialists are doing and not doing anymore. Mm-hmm. And then you save money. Yeah. Yeah. You know, but that doesn't, yeah. that doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. I mean, we did do, we do, we did do some of that and, and on the inpatient floor, you know, managing inpatient yeah. patients there. I think some docs or some specialists, uh, you know, felt like that was even uh, appropriate it's because that would save them a consult and them having to actually yeah, see I mean, the do you think like, I mean, this <laughs> but, is what I laugh at with like 
the Boston way of thinking. Yeah. You know, someone rolls their ankle, you know, and sprains their ankle big time. Mm-hmm. But you look at them and you're like, you know, this is a non-surgical issue. Yeah. But they have to go to the head of foot and ankle at Mass General yeah. and end up seeing a PA or an NP because do you really think that he or she who's the head of foot and ankle orthopedics at Mass General wants to see an ankle sprain? Absolutely not. No. <laughs> they want to see cases that they are likely going to have to take to the OR and not only mm-hmm. that, but like cases that they can write up in journals, yeah. you know? So it's like, are you really getting the best care just because you're walking in the door of Mass General? Right. No, but you're paying Porsche money for it. Yeah. So, you know, I think that a lot of what we have to do is really educate and shift the paradigm of, Mm -hmm. you know, you go to some rural areas, you know, in the country. I mean, you have primary care docs. My buddy Vance Lassie, who's in Holton, Kansas, is a DPC doc. That dude does everything. I mean, he's put up pictures of things he's sewn together or procedures he's done that I wouldn't even touch (laughs) with a 10 foot pole, but they don't have a choice. Yeah. You know, the nearest hospital around the, you know, major tertiary centers, like a hundred miles away. Yeah. Well, I think people also have a misconception, like, like you said, people have a misconception of what's in the scope of practice of a primary care doctor, like a very, a well-trained family physician, you know, like can do a lot, a lot, like, What's that, Andy? I gotta be honest with you. Like working in primary care, it's hard because a lot of the specialists take a crap on us because they're like, you know, you don't, you don't specialize in anything. You know a little bit about a lot, which it, it isn't really true. We know a lot about a lot, but sometimes it hurts. I make myself feel better because I remember there's a guy who calls himself Doctor Mercola who has a whole website where he sells tanning beds to people saying that they need vitamin D. And he doesn't believe in vaccines. And I'm like, wow, this guy is dumb. Like, if I'm feeling bad, if I'm having a bad day, I just look at Mercola and I'm like, wow, E equals MC dipshit. Dr. Mercola, you make Dr. Phil look like Sanjay Gupta. Dr. Mercola, you make Dr. Oz look like Jonas Salt, brother. Come on. Okay, listen. Okay, I got a a lot of these. A rock has a higher Glasgow coma scale than Dr. Mercola. I firmly believe that every dolphin in the ocean... Shout out to Z Dog for that uh, for that one. Yeah, Z, I, you know we do have to shout out. I do I do want to shout. You know Andy Andy here is. Um, can we talk about your former career, Andy? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, t- t- tell us about what you used to do. Well, uh, yeah, I mean I had the the uh, opportunity and sort of fun experience to work with Z Dog MD as his one of his uh, executive producer. And uh, basically, you know, he built this platform. A lot of you probably are, you know, familiar with some of his stuff. He got sort of famous in, in medicine circles off of doing hilarious parodies, um, similar to the one you just heard. But then, you know, he started to get a little bit bigger with this platform and, and, and having on guests and, and whatnot. And a lot of organizations in healthcare wanted to partner and sponsor with him. And, you know, a lot of them are crap. He doesn't want to, you know, he's a very authentic evidence-based physician at the end of the day, even though he's so funny. Uh, but he needed someone to come on and sort of vet, like, the, um, you know, what kind of healthcare are you guys full of crap? Or are you actually doing something that's going to have an impact on a doctor, a busy doctor at the point of care? So I would sort of work with, find out who's, who are good companies. And, yeah, you want to sponsor us? Um, we'll do something fun and get the mm-hmm. word out about what you're doing. So, yeah. Nice. So you were, you know, part of the production team. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and sure you were so. in a couple of videos with him. And, like, yeah. that's, I mean, I gotta, I gotta, I don't know if Z, I, I don't know if Z Dog will ever hear this, but he is doing a good thing for medicine because yeah. 
he speaks a lot of what's on our mind, you know? Oh, he, like, he, he just cut, like, I know he filters a lot. I'm sure he does because. Well, nowadays it's a little tougher than when he started. You yeah. Know, even five years or even 2015, 16, some of the peak videos yeah. that he did were great. And you know, now the cancel culture stuff right. has just gone They're, to another level. So, right. yeah. And, yeah, and I and I and I and I get the energy because I know, like for me, I I filter myself definitely, um, and I also check myself when I know I'm, uh, you know, the resentment is check coming out. Check yourself before you wreck yourself. Absolutely, yes. Got to always check yourself. But you know, like uh, I think a lot of us, man, where there is that resentment, man, that resentment sometimes comes out, and it's like, ah, like it, it, it makes you want to lash out, well, makes you want to well, go and, you know, like. Yeah. figure it like that's what i learned with yeah. z is is uh, through traveling with him to these different conferences where he was a keynote and meeting i met so many doctors mostly you know primary care family practice and mm. learning really you know i used to hear about when i worked it up to date you know physician burnout and it's really hard for i'm like what like most lay people don't understand that um but i you know got a sort of close-up view of what it really means because z would explain it to me it's like you like you guys were talking about you go into train with this calling right you want to you want to practice medicine you want to help people and you end up in the system where you're a glorified data entry clerk you know and you're just minimized and, and you know demeaned by the suits and the administrators and then you have to suffer while you see patients that you want to help and you know you could help had you only the time and the flexibility to do so um, you know not do well and, and day after day after day after day that wears on anybody let alone some of the most intuitive you know um, thoughtful and passionate people, physicians and healthcare workers. And then, you know, with everything else, they start to burn out, right? And they start to suffer. And it's not because they're not strong enough or, or, or resilient enough, which is what mm -hmm. the, the sort of the, the, you know, they framed it that way to blame the individual. Mm -hmm. It's about this friggin' system that is just mm -hmm. eating them alive. And, and I've become really passionate because I've seen what it does. And, yeah. and um, so I think that was one of the benefits is taking me a muggle, a layperson, and, and exposing them to what's going on on the inner, uh, you know, on the, on the inside. Yeah. And I can see you're very passionate about this, Andy, and you, you know, we've talked a lot off It's just off getting hot mic. in here, so I'm just yeah. starting to get like... The, uh, yeah. It's just because you're so close to Dr. Gold over here. Yeah. And he's just, no, a bit, he's just been on fire today. Well, full, full disclosure. Well, you're actually my my patient, which is. <laughs> you should the, not disclose that full, here, guy. The full, the full. Um, is that a hippo violation? The full reveal. Oh my god, this is, is so wrong. We have we we have touched each other. Oh. Um, but no, I think that you guys are gonna get me canceled, guys. It's it's really um. It's really you know gratifying to feel like you're actually doing something that matters you know like i feel like when i was at my old job the job was easy and what i mean by that is you know i didn't have to worry about people's paychecks i didn't have to worry about their benefits i didn't have to worry whether the office was cleaned overnight i showed up and did my did my shift did what i had to do and then the problem the only problem was the medicine sucked yeah you know and i'll never forget that the re the day i realized i had a make a change was I was very close to my grandmother growing up. We were super close and she's a major part of the reason why I went into medicine. And I'll never forget. I had a little 80 something year old coming in for her annual checkup. And what most people don't know is Medicare does not pay for a physical. She literally took nothing but vitamins. So I'm sitting there saying, 
how am I even going to code this? Worried about coding so she doesn't get hit with like a $500 bill, right? Because she's expecting this to be free. And I'm listening to her talk about her 10 like relatively mild complaints and was like, I'm angry at her. Like I'm mad at like a little 87-year-old lady right now. And I'm like, am I? then I got home that night and I was like, am I frustrated or mad at her? Or am I mad at a system that literally I have to sit and figure out how I'm going to punch in numbers on a piece of paper so that she doesn't get hit with a $500 bill? And then I also have 10 minutes to sit and talk to her about these things that to me were picayune, but to her, it's all relative. You know, she happened to be pretty healthy and these were the issues she wanted to talk about. But because I have no time... I'm getting angry at like a woman that could have been my grandmother. Right. You know, and it just made me feel absolutely Mm -hmm. sick. So it's like, Mm -hmm. I think that people have to realize when they say that doctor, you know, spent five minutes with me, ask yourself, do you think that doctor wants to spend five minutes with you? Yeah. Yeah. Like really? I think that's a great point. And I'm like thinking about this, like relating so hard right now because, uh, barriers, create that frustration that makes it seem like like that anger comes out at towards the patient almost because because i'm thinking of like when i'm on when i was on call and you know like the community i work in doesn't speak english so i'd have to get on you know i'd get a call i'd call back with an interpreter which takes me 10 minutes to get on with an interpreter call the patient patient doesn't answer then two seconds later i get a call back i have to get on the phone again call the interpreter back for another 10 minutes meanwhile i've got six more pages that i have to respond to meanwhile i'm about to throw my phone like across the phone because i'm so frustrated that the patient you know just didn't answer their phone like okay like it happens but because i had to do all these other things and then i have to decipher and dissect what is going on here with an interpreter and then figure out how I'm going to then call my attending, share the plan, and then go back to answering the rest of the eight pages that I have. And then, oh, don't forget to document all of that shit you just did. And my brain, like when I was on call, like half a day of being on call was like three days of work in terms of my emotional, you know, exhaustion, because like I would just have it. And like, There'd be times I'd catch myself like, Rami, this isn't the patient's fault. This is clearly like, you know, just breathe, breathe through this because I would get so irritated because of like, like just things that happen. Like they're just, I mean, these are things that happen with any job, but like when there's more barriers, when there's more things that like add to the frustrations, it's like, it comes out man and it comes out hard and like this is on top of add sleep deprivation into that add social isolation into that add um all of the other things that you guys have that you've experienced in residency throw that into a mix where like you're seven you're you're 10 days going on 10 and then you're on call and doing that happens like like imagine imagine like this is residents all across the country right now and then you have to put on the then you have to feel the 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 then you have to feel the guilt of am i a bad person for feeling that way am i a bad person because i oh, am so take a shower and a nap. well it's just it's just it trains everybody to think that's normal to feel that kind of way 
or not to like to pretend to brush that off and pretend like you're not a you're not deeply deeply frustrated or angry or just like fed up you know I, I remember from the patient side thinking the last time I tried to find a primary care doc, like what, and I went in like, what a jerk, what a, what an asshole that guy was. And it wasn't until, you know, recently that it all came back. And I, I'll, I know I told the story to you guys, but I'll rehash it real quick. It's something everyone's, you know, probably heard in a different form or another, but you know, when I had my first kid, you know, my mother was like, Andrew, you haven't had a checkup in years. You need, you should, you eating all those sub sandwiches and drink. I know you're drinking a lot and you put on some weight, Andrew. So you need to get, you really should get checked. So I'm like, all right, I got to find, how do I friggin' find a, like, how does one go about finding a doc? Like, uh, so I just went on one of the major Boston area health systems websites, primary care, I started scrolling through, like looking at pictures of people that didn't look too weird. You know, and I found this guy and, you know, so I went in, you know, made an appointment, go in, wait, you know, forever. Right. And then you go in, I sat in the wait in the exam room forever. And then he comes in, barely makes eye contact. The whole thing just looked like he was just exasperated. You know, mm-hmm. I still remember, he came, hey, how'd you, you know, how'd you find me? I'm like, I just went on the website. You look like a regular, you know, kind of normal guy. And mm-hmm. he, uh, he said, all right, what's your history? And he's behind the laptop with his glass reading, you know, and. He's not looking, I'm going through, and he's like, yeah, maybe drink a little less, maybe that might be a bit much, and, you know, I'm like, all right, is it, I, I'm going in with the mindset of I want to establish a relationship with a doc, so he'll yeah. t- check me out, and, and I can start to take, sh- you know, stuff seriously. So he just goes through a list, and then at the end, he's like, how much do you drink? But, and then he's like, all right, I, I'm like, ah, right. sometimes I get palpitations. He's like, palpitations? And I see him, like, lowers glasses, you know? <laughs> and I'm like, I thought, I Googled it. It said it was, like, pretty normal. You just said the key. You know, and then he, I swear to God, long story short, he wheels in an EKG machine and like a nurse appears and he's like, okay, lie back and take mm-hmm. your shirt off. And he hooks me up and then he comes back later with a printout in his glass. He's like, you have a left anterior hemiblock. Mm-hmm. And he's like, we need to schedule you for an echo. I'm like, a blo- all I hear is a block and heart, yeah, you know, and I'm like freaking, freaking out. out. And he, yeah. he's like, it's, you know, it's probably okay, but we just want to make sure there's no underlying structural cardio. So... I go back a couple of weeks later, whenever for this thing, and I get the tech does it, and I'm like, all right, you know, and then I hear so you got nothing. an echo a couple of days later. Yeah, well, yeah. it was yeah, maybe a few, yeah. like a week or two, yeah. and uh, I hear nothing, yeah. like I hear nothing, and I call in, you know, after like two or three weeks, and I'm like, oh no, there's nothing here. We'll be into, you know, after a month, six weeks, I finally got a nurse. She's like, oh, I found the file. Um, the cardiologist wrote results okay. So you should be all set. Man, that is horrible. So I, that was my introduction to uh, getting a primary care doc. Um, he was looking for that one nail that was sticking up that he could send me along, you know, check the box and then send me along and then, like, protect himself so he doesn't get sued if I had a heart problem or something. I don't that's, know what he was doing. That's pretty much, yeah. And, and I was like, holy shit. And, and, and it yeah. wasn't until later, and I had another experience I mean, like that, but I met Jeff. And he's just shaking his head, like telling me, dude, this is not what primary care, this, this horrific, you know? Yeah. And, it, and, and it wasn't until then I mean, that I realized it wasn't his fault. unneeded anxiety. I because I used to do the same thing. And, and, yeah. and, and, and I was guilty of it too. I recognized that it wasn't that guy being a, you know, being a jerk and not caring. It's because he couldn't, because he probably had to go see 20 more other people. Right. Um, and so. This is just scratching the surface of the things that happen. And primary care, there's there's hundreds more 
maybe endless yeah. examples of things similar. And, and I was friends with, when yeah. I was at Up to Date, I used to do workouts with the ER editor, who's a friend of mine, and the cardiology editor. And I remember being in the locker room, you, you know, this guy, John, used to put us through these really intense workouts. And I made a joke. I'm like, guys, like, uh, the only reason I'm doing this is because, you know, if I drop, somebody here will know what to do. And I'm like, seriously, Brian, you're a cardiologist. They told me I have a left anterior hemiblock. And he, like, closed the lock. He's like, yeah, there's no, yeah. a bundle branch block. He's like, it's common. Yeah. It's no big deal. And I'm like, really? Because he made it. So he's like, he did that. I'm like, really? Like, that sucks, man. Yeah. Like, I wouldn't, I'm not your doctor, but, like, probably. I mean, okay. it's cover your ass medicine, yeah. in a sense. Um, and you know if you're gonna put someone through that at least make sure that the cardiologist or whoever is reading the the echo is gonna at least you know give you a call and let you know it's fine well, <laughs> I mean, that's know, part it, of it happens all the time yeah. and you know and the specialists are dealing with it too now I mean I remember you know when I was first practicing if you had a patient who was on maximum you know acid reduction therapy for you know heartburn or gastritis and they weren't getting better you could just say we're going to ship you to gi to get an endoscopy done mm -hmm. now they have to see the gi doc for a visit then they have to the gi doc has to prove that they need the egd yeah. i mean you know it's happening it's happening with specialists too now and you know i just think you know, at least they're a little better compensated, you know, for, and they can ha have the staff do, you know, do most of it. But, um, yeah, I don't know what the hell I was talking about or where I was going. Re-up my Adderall. Well, I mean, uh, no, but I think, you know, the issue is, is like you said, I mean, this really is scratching the surface. I mean, mm -hmm. there, there are layers to this that, you know, like I said, I hope, to someday write a memoir because mm. all this stuff is up in my brain. I don't, I don't even write it down. I don't yeah. have to. Cause yeah. it's like when you see it, mm -hmm. it is so memorable that like you can't, you can't forget it. Yeah. You know, you can't. Can you, I mean, we've been talking here for a while, but there's, I think in like five minutes or less, you had this experience where you fell, you broke your rib, yep. you went to get an x-ray and the next thing you know is you're getting a bill for $500 or something. And, you know, can you walk us? I, 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 know, I know that this is an interesting story, but if you can kind of. Oh, I can stop, easily. Yeah. yeah. So I slipped on black ice getting out of my car. Yeah. My girlfriend was there. She thought I died. Um, it was pretty bad. I knew I fractured a couple of ribs and I know with rib fractures, you know, there's really not much you can do other than pain control. Um, as long as you're breathing. Okay. And the first night wasn't too bad. The second night I stayed at her place and was like, just did not sleep at all. The pain was like excruciating. And I was trying to be a hard O, which is a Massachusetts, uh, term that you can look up a hardo yeah hardo it's what a big it's it's like a tough guy you a know tough like, guy? but not a tough sounds guy. Something, someone like sounds trying like to be else. a tough guy <laughs> yeah but if you <laughs> but in massachusetts like anyone will know what a hardo is so i was trying to be a hardo take tylenol and advil you know ice packs but it was just getting brutal so i called my doc who is a system doc and you know i needed i needed pain meds to at least help it sleep at night so he was like you know, sure. He's like, just do me a favor though. Get, even though it's not going to change much, get an x-ray. And I said, okay, let's do a little experiment here. So I said, send the order to outpatient radiology, our local hospital. 
I'm on staff there, but I go in, no one knows I'm a doctor and I'm, I'm pretty interested in healthcare policy. And as you know, there's been some major sweeping laws about transparency for not only cash pricing, but also the negotiated rates between hospitals and insurance companies. Mm-hmm. So I know that a rib series is about 50 bucks cash. Yeah. I mean, that's what it should cost from, you know, doing what I do. So I go in there and I have my phone on record and I go up to the desk and it's like I said, if you want to see someone's head spin in the U S just go to a yeah. hospital and tell them you don't have health insurance and you want to know what something costs. And it's like, just do it for fun. Cause it really is fun. <laughs> and this poor lady, I mean, she's super sweet, but she had no idea what to do. She's got to get her supervisor over her supervisors. Like, well, we, I said, I'm on video saying like, can you just tell me what it costs? Like, and I'll write you a check. I'll, give you a credit card. Like I don't, I'm uninsured, yeah. um, which is partly true. Cause I'm, I'm on a sharing group and they're not going to pay, you know, for a simple x-ray and make a long story short. They're like, well, we're going to have to send you to, um, financial support, you know, and you'll get an email with an estimate after. So I leave, I get so the, the whole email. idea of you writing a check or paying in cash it's, is absolutely oh, absurd. It's like the exorcist, like yeah, your head okay. just spins okay, and explodes okay. because they just yeah. can't. But imagine doing that at any other service industry. Yeah. Mind-boggling. I mean, they were just expecting to take your insurance yeah. card and bill your insurance, mm-hmm. but there was no option. Like the fact that you wanted to pay cash for a procedure so you just had done was mind-boggling. Yeah. It would be like me going on a trip mm-hmm. to, and buying a ticket and be like, can I use my health insurance to pay for that, for my ticket? It'd be the same reaction. They'd be like, what? Like, yeah. Yeah. that's what it was like. It was like this foreign concept. Yeah. So, you know, they don't know I work for the hospital. They don't know I'm a doctor or whatever. So I go home and I get the email and the estimate with a 25% discount is $377. So it's 450 is what they charge. For just a single just the set of... Not even for the radiologist reading <clears throat> it, just for the procedure itself. Yeah. So a $50 test is marked up with a discount at $377. So mm-hmm. I'm like, this is insane. So I write to the person and I was like, do I get, you know, I was trying to sit, you know, some humor and I was like, look, I'm not going to make a big deal out of it, but you guys really should have price transparency or at least a tool available at the desk because with high deductibles and uninsured patients, more and more people are going to be asking. Mm -hmm. And I said, you know, I know for a fact that, you know, this should cost around 50 bucks cash. Do I get like a free steak? you know, or something with this for three is the machine gold plated. I mean, you know, I was, I was, I mean, I was being obnoxious, but the reality is like, what the hell kind of markup is that? Yeah. And what's funny is the radiology group who actually reads the films and they're the ones taking the liability, like God mm-hmm. forbid if they misread something or yeah, yeah. I had a lung tumor that they missed cause they were focusing on my ribs. I get a bill from them for 20 bucks. So I'm like, they're getting 20 bucks to read the film, mm-hmm. but these, this facility is charging 377 for a test that costs 50. So I mean, I have, how is that even legal? Like, how did they get around? How did they, you can go a mile down mar- the street and yeah. it'd be something totally different. How and, can you mark it up that much? Like what's, I mean, I know that they don't get the full, I know they can bill for 377. Because what that, did they do is it's, yeah. that's why I said it's a cartel. It's yeah. a scam. Basically, if you get an EOB, mm-hmm. which is the thing you get in the mail that says this is not a bill, yeah, people look at it and they're like, they throw it right away because they're like, this is so confusing, it makes no sense, but I'll simplify it for you. Yeah, If you go and get an MRI of your shoulder, 
yeah. at, a, at a major hospital system and you have Blue Cross Blue Shield for insurance yeah. and you bill it through insurance and say you have a 2,000 individual, 4,000 family deductible, okay? Yeah. They bill the insurance this charge master rate, which uh-huh. is some made up number. Yeah. So say they say $5,000 for this MRI, okay? Yeah, which is like, I mean, it's like 3,000, well, right, on average. Then yeah. they get a bill, the EOB that says, well, blah, 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 the negotiated rate do, 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 mm-hmm. is like 2,500 bucks. Okay. All right. So your out of pocket is going to be like a grand or 1,200 towards your deductible. So you think, holy moly, thank God I have insurance because look at the discount oh. I got off this, right? <clears throat> yeah. The reality is the test is about, fi- is about $500. Yeah. You still got screwed. Yeah. I mean, it's literally psychology. It's like it's all it ma- is. Psychology. It's manipulating your psychology to think you're making, you're getting a great right. deal. Well, that's when, what that's what what's his, that's not. what Escobar did. It's like, like marking up something like like oh, right. this costs a hundred dollars, but I'm going to give you it for forty when it's worth three dollars. Right. And so you think you're getting a. But great at least deal. you know, like if you go to a yeah. restaurant, right, nice yeah. steakhouse, and you know that like you're going to buy a bottle of wine. That at yeah. the local liquor store it may cost nine dollars, but here it's going to be thirty-four because you're getting, you know, you're paying for the ambiance, you're paying for the service. But at least you know, right. so you have the choice of saying, "I want to go get my crappy steak at Ponderosa tonight," uh-huh. versus Morton's. You can't do that in healthcare. Yeah. Like you can't. And that's why that's where the car analogy and car insurance falls apart because unlike your car or your home, you can go on a Facebook group and say, Hey, who does everybody use for oil changes around here? Do you go to Jiffy Lube? Who does a good job? Who's affordable? Try doing that with healthcare. Mm-hmm. We are the tool. Yeah. DPC docs are the only ones in the system that know what the hell anything costs Yeah, and where to get it. Yeah. The first time I ever saw the prices of labs and medications was when a DPC doc posted them on his website. Yeah. And showed the, and then I did my own research, looking up how much does insurance bill up, like, let's say a CBC mm-hmm. or like a TSH or something right, like so that. Right. So that MRI so analogy like 10X, I use, they around do, 10x. Yeah, they do the same thing with labs. Yeah. You know, you get a comp- comprehensive metabolic <clears throat> panel. You know, and they say, oh, it's, uh, you know, two. We bill the insurance two hundred dollars. We got paid ninety nine. Uh, we get the test for six dollars. Yeah. It makes no sense. It just makes zero sense. I know when... Uh, but it kind of does, though. <laughs> when Marty McCary, Dr. Marty McCary is a surgeon at Johns Hopkins. He's, you know, a lot of you have probably heard of him. He wrote this book called The Price We Pay, um, which is phenomenal. you yeah. got to read it. But he told Z-Dog in a show that in his research, they were finding these hospital bills that were marked up 20 to 25 times the Medicare allow- allowable amount like insane markups by the hospital and like explain Mm -hmm. that 20 times what it's yeah and then you you were telling me about another uh book uh uh catastrophic catastrophic care care, yeah um i mean like this just but but i mean how is this legal but this is what i'm getting at though is if people would not leave they lock their door at night yeah. They don't want robbers coming in and taking their TV or stealing their kids or their jewels or their wad of cash that's under underneath their bed. But yet you just go and, and employers do this too. Like you just go and give your money. 
like yeah. to these people. You get robbed every day and you have no idea what the hell you're getting for. I always say that, you know, when you look at a self-employed business, if you look at a, a family who's like self-employed mm-hmm. or a, a corporation, right? Mm-hmm. Their second line item on the budget for both those parties is health insurance. Yeah. This one's behind a mortgage. This one's behind salary. Sometimes now it's even more than a mortgage. Yeah. They spend more time researching flat screen TVs and a car than they do what their second biggest annual expense is. Yeah. It's my, it's mind boggling. It's yeah. literally my, and I'm, and I'm equally guilty of it. I, I am a recovered insurance addict. I did everything that the public does now. I thought, oh, my employer is paying for it. I don't even know how much money is taken out of my paycheck. Every month. All I know is I have this nice-looking Blue Cross card mm-hmm. in my wallet. Yeah. Until I became a small <clears throat> business owner myself, and I had to insure my ex-wife and two kids, I was like, oh, now I'm paying the bill. Mm-hmm. Even though I really was paying the bill before, just in a different way, mm-hmm. now I'm really paying the bill. I'm seeing that premium go right out of my bank account every month. Mm-hmm. And that's my education process took five years yeah. to go from, you know, a hospital owned insurance plan that was ripping me off to another plan that was kind of mid range to now being like, Hey, you know, I'm going on a sharing group and I'm going to pay cash and be protected. You know, if the crap hits the fan, because this is ridiculous, I'm saving myself $500 a month Yeah. on premium. Yeah. I mean, this is a whole conversation in itself too. I mean, talking about insurance premiums and self-insured plans and how employers are even doing their own models. But this is what I say to people is look at, like we offer, and most DPC docs do this. Mm -hmm. We offer a free half hour to an hour meet and greet. Like we'll help you with insurance. We'll help you understand what DPC is. Maybe this year it's not right for you and that's okay. But like, at least you got educated about it and it's now in the back of your head. And part of this is on us too, for not doing a better job, getting the word out there and getting people to understand that concierge, they charge you a high fee and they still bill insurance. Mm -hmm. You know, we don't, we're like a Netflix model with Costco built in, you know, you get all the care you need for a primary care perspective and you get the bargains that we shop for you. They're not even bargains. They're actually what things really cost. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I mean, it's small business at its best, you know, like it's supporting small business also in a way. Yeah. And it's supporting your community and supporting like a a movement in a sense. And uh, I think they're, 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 you know, I do think that, in the next five to 10 years, it will be much more mainstream and much easier to do this. And I do think in the next five to 10 years that uh, a lot of doctors coming out of training will go right into DPC because I can already see technology has made it much simpler to bootstrap and get right, right to it, um, especially with some things that are changing within the employer space. Mm-hmm. Um, I do see this becoming more of a thing and I do think it'll be a good thing for primary care because it will also incentivize uh, future doctors to go into primary care because, you know, they'll have, uh, they'll have more potential to make a higher salary. Yeah, I mean, that's and what, that's what you and I have talked, talked about. I mean, there's different ways to skin a cat, but I mean, I hope, 
you know, in addition to clinical medicine, like my hope is to build a business and that allows docs to get out of the system safely or truthfully never go into the system in the first place, but really come out and practice medicine, not have to worry about the stuff, you know, that I had to do when I left. Um, you know, and we've talked about, you know, trying to find an infra way to build infrastructure that's affordable, you know, that they don't have to go spend $50 a square foot, mm -hmm. you know, on office space and build an office space. But, you know, it doesn't take much, you know, you don't need an operating suite, you know, with primary yeah. care, it doesn't take much to get an office up and yeah. going. And we rethink, we honestly, like um, my startup company right now that we're building and we haven't talked too much about, but it really doesn't. You know, the, it's about the relationship right. and providing what's needed for the relationship. And really, that's that's the core of it. And a lot of doctors started off in very, very humble spaces, you know. Well, that's how it used to be. I, mean, I think that, you know, this is what we're trying to get back to, you know, is we're trying to get back to, like, the humanity and the heart of what primary care used to be about. And now we've got the technology that we can use to enhance it and make it easier and make it better. Yeah. But I don't think it's ever going to replace, you know, the, the humanity of primary care. That's, that's what I think the biggest thing that's been missing is. Yep. Yeah. Well, Andy, you look, uh, you look intrigued over there. Yeah, I'm just processing all we covered a lot of ground, shared a few laughs. It's been fun. This has been a good talk. I uh, I enjoyed this one. I know yeah, the one that um, I always I always kind of leave with is um, there's a guy Buckminster Fuller. He was kind of like a famous uh, architect, and I usually end you know most of the talks I do to like employers or benefits people. I mm -hmm. I usually end them with one of his quotes and. Um, you know, I'll do the same here. I just got to go through all the memes that are on my phone um, <laughs> that I have saved or this toilet that was for given away for free on the curb in my hometown. Um, Is that a, a phallus? It could be. It could be. It could be. <laughs> Yeah, I, I really don't think anybody could ever want to go go through my, my phone. I'd probably get arrested. Um but it was something, it's something towards the effect of, you know, in order, you know, to fix a broken model, you've got to tear it down and basically build it, you know, rebuild it from the bottom up. And I'm mm -hmm. not doing it justice. And you'd think by now I'd remember it, but I think it's really true. Um, in order to fix this, we can't just keep doing more of the same. You know, it's like Einstein's definition of insanity, mm -hmm. you know doing the same thing over and over yeah. and expecting a different result. So, yeah. um, but it's going to take the public, you know, to really, really help us docs do the right thing and make it better for the generations behind us. If not, yeah, we're fucked or yeah. screwed. I should say, sorry. Do you guys mind if I smoke in here? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Andy is kidding. We are in a workspace. We cannot smoke. And he's, he's a jokester for anybody wondering. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, we've touched on a lot and, and look, I, I also believe that this is uh, something that's grassroots that will take time. There's no bandaid treatment. There's no bandaid solution. There's no technology that's going to come out and magically bad overnight. Yeah. It's not going to just, there's nothing, overnight. nothing's going to come and magically, no technology is going to come and change healthcare. You know, I, I do appreciate all the people that talk about changing healthcare and talk about changing, uh, 
you know, disrupting healthcare and, and so on and so forth. I appreciate, I, I like that, but I also um, don't believe in getting the, too romantic about certain ideas. And I think there's a lot of romanticism of all these tech companies like coming out and actually. That's why most uh, of them fail. Well, it's not, I, I don't even, I, I don't even think they can fail. They just are valued. Uh, they just have insane valuations and they get like a $30 million investment and have no revenue and they're just pumped up with money. And then, yeah, you know, you, you <laughs> who know, knows if they'll fail. I do think we're in a bit of a bubble here. You, you know, what's coincidental is I was actually talking sort of informal interview with this company that does, uh, a virtual primary care platform. We'll just leave it at that. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, in theory, like it could work or it is, you know, I guess it could work, but there was this cognitive dissonance, right. Of like, when I'm talking to them thinking, well, there is no relationship here. Like this mm -hmm. patient, yes, they're getting access, I guess, but there's absolutely no relationship being built. So how could I, as a DPC yeah. patient and advocate and supporter, mm -hmm like and then i thought well i could rationalize it by saying it's a supplement to the ideal mm -hmm. but it is it, you know I, I don't know yet i, I i'm not all it's these, also new yeah. yeah all of these tech company all technology will make it easier to remove the middlemen but it will not be the actual move there has to be a move there there has to be a movement technology will facilitate that movement uh, but it will not be the all in all solution. So all of these different technologies coming together, being used in different ways, will help facilitate the end goal of removing the middlemen and creating autonomy and flexibility for doctors. You know, there are companies already where, you know, if you are a female and you get pregnant during your, you know, let's say you're two years out into practice and you get pregnant and you want to change up your lifestyle, you want to start doing some practice from home. There's Firefly. There's all of the, and I've seen, I've talked to plenty of women who are doing this now and they do part-time from home and, you know, it gives them flexibility. And this is even for someone like myself who has other hobbies. I would do something like this where I would just do like part-time work from home and because my schedule and what, what you know, my, my different hobbies require that. So flexibility, autonomy, things that we didn't have before are now possible because of technology, yeah. which will further facilitate yeah. the end goal. I think Firefly, is that the one in Wellesley that Jonathan Bush is behind? Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, Jonathan Bush, the founder of Athena Health. He's, uh, he's a cool guy. But uh, mm -hmm. anyway, yeah, there's a lot of them out there. And Yeah. All right. Anyways, thank you guys for listening. Uh, Andy, Dr. Gold, thank you guys for joining today. Uh, we'll have to do this again. Guys, if you enjoyed this podcast, you know, uh, share it with your friends, post it on your stories, give us a holler, and peace. Peace.